Psalm 19 is a goldmine of theology. It reveals God speaking through his works and through his word. The psalmist moves from general revelation in verses 1 through 6 to special revelation in verses 7 through 11, and finally ending with God speaking to his own heart. It is God's intention in communicating through the splendor of nature and through the specifics of his word to reach you and I. And the question we must ask is, are we listening? God speaks in order that we might hear and obey. And so whether he's speaking through his works in nature, we would call that general revelation, or whether he's speaking to us directly through his word, which we would call special revelation, God is expecting us to listen and to obey. Another interesting feature to Psalm 19 is the use of God's title El, or Elohim, and his personal covenant name, Yahweh. In the first part of this psalm, in the first six verses, uh, he is referred to as simply God, or El, Elohim. In fact, anytime you're in your English Bible, in the Old Testament, and you see the name God, it's the Old Testament title for God, El or Elohim, the Mighty One, the Almighty One. In the second part, beginning in verse 7, David invokes the personal name of God, Yahweh, that the name that he only uses with those who are in a covenant relationship with him. It's the name invoked in redemption. And so he makes himself, through his word, known as Yahweh. And it's interesting because in general revelation, as God reveals himself in nature through his works, we can only know him as God. Yes, there's a God that exists. But when we come to his word, we don't just meet the mighty one. We enter into a personal relationship and we now know him on a first name basis. He, our God is Yahweh. And so in your English Old Testament, when you see capital L, lower caps, O-R-D, that is the name Yahweh being translated into English. Also, according to the inscription, this psalm was written for the choir director, a psalm of David. David penned this, uh, and it was meant to be sung by the people of God in worship to him. Now, we're going to divide this psalm into three parts uh, as we consider Psalm 19 and see God speaking through his work and word. Verses 1 through 6, we'll see God's word revealed. Verses 7 through 11, God's word revered. And then finally, in verses 12 through 14, God's work required. God's work required. So let's begin in verses 1 through 6 and see God's word revealed. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. 
The psalm begins with a meditation on the works of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The word glory describes the weight of God. It's a word that means weight. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, it carries the idea of the true opinion of who God is or what He has done. And so when we look at the works of God in nature, the heavens are declaring the true opinion of who God is and what He has done. And we can hardly read those lines without hearing the words of Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The parallel line and their expanse is declaring the works of His hands adds the truth that the hand of God is seen in creation. Like an artist, God has signed his work in the expanse. The expanse or the firmament is the layers of the atmosphere. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. The verb pours literally means to bubble up. So day to day, the works of God are bubbling up and revealing who God is. Creation reveals the Creator continually, like water continuously bubbling up out of the ground. His glory, His handiwork is declared and shown day and night. Now the affirmations of verses 1 and 2 are reinforced by the reverse expression in verse 3. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Verse 3's negation qualifies verses 1 and 2. The revelation that is bubbling forth from creation has been described poetically. In other words, while God is speaking in creation, it's not verbal, but it nevertheless is real. As Paul says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There is enough in nature to reveal the invisible attributes of God, His eternal power, and the Godhead, or the Trinity. All of those things are revealed in nature. Have you ever taken a moment to stop and smell the roses, as they say? To literally stop and, and consider something in creation and ask yourself, what does that reveal about God. The psalmist continues, Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. The word given here as line is unique. The scripture uses it in the Old Testament as both a chord, which produces a sound, i.e. a harp, or as a measuring line, which is used for judgment. Now, the next line of this psalm, the parallel line, says their utterances to the end of the world. And so that's going to dictate that the line in the first part of that uh, uh, sentence, their line has gone out, literally is a chord, a, a, a chord that produces a sound. So there's a sound going out throughout all the earth. There's utterances going throughout the ends of the world. And the point is that there is no place or person that does not have some knowledge of God. By general revelation, God has prepared the way through his, through his continual speech, and the door is wide open to evangelism. Have we stopped and asked ourselves how we can use general revelation to point people to God?
have we stopped to consider how many people just taking a moment, taking in creation, how many people may be prepared for the message of the gospel? Think of people standing and, and watching a sunrise or, or standing there enraptured in, in awe at a sunset. They're seeing the hand of God. They're seeing the work of God. Have we ever taken the time in that moment to ask them, do they know who this God is and what that means for them for all eternity? The psalmist now turns to the marvel of the sun, describing it again in poetic terms as a bridegroom and a strong man. It says, in them, that is the heavens, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. The tent represents the place where the sun goes when it sets. Now understand, the sun does not actually move, per se. The earth is what's moving around the sun. Now, of course, technically, the, the galaxy is expanding and moving, yes, through the universe. But for our purpose in this psalm, it's being written from the psalmist's perspective. And so he's describing it from our perspective. I mean, even today, we still say, oh, the sun is rising or the sun is setting. And so when the sun is setting, it's going into its tent. It's going into its place. When a new day dawns, it now comes out like a bridegroom, prepared, radiant, adorned, waiting for his bride. The picture of the sun rejoicing like a strong man to run his course is the picture of an athlete leaping into a race with joy. And so, you know, every day that he sees the sun rise and run its course through the day and go into its tent at night, he's reminded of the power of God. And verse 6 completes that thought. It is, it's rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end in them. Again, the sun is stationary. From our perspective, though, it rises and sets. It's constantly on the move. And when the sun is, is shining on us, it's not shining in another part of the earth. Okay? And then when it sets here, when, as the sun is setting here uh, in the west, it's rising in the east in another part of the world. And the point is that uh, the sun is constantly on the move and it's constantly rejoicing about God so that the earth is constantly hearing about the glory of the Creator. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. The sun radiates the light of God who is light. And just as nothing is hidden from the sun, nothing is hidden from God. Think about that. If there's nothing else you pick up in creation, just the fact that the sun is shining reminds you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. As you watch that sun cross the sky from sunrise to sunset, you are reminded that you are not hidden from God. Nothing you do is hidden from God. Now we come to verses 7 through 11. God's word revered. God's word revered. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. 
Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The psalmist now turns his attention to special revelation. Verses 1 through 6, God uh, was revealing himself generally through his work, God's work revealed. And now we have God's word revered in verses 7 through 11. Through God's word, we are warned, and as we obey God's word, we are rewarded. Here we come to understand that as the Son is comprehensive for our world, so the Word is comprehensive for our lives. Before the Word of God, there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now verse 7 we read, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The word law here, the Hebrew word for law, Torah, means revelation. You know, oftentimes we hear the word Torah and we just simply think it means legislation. But the word actually means revelation, and instruction. By being perfect, it means that the revelation or God's law is complete, it's sound, and it's whole. In other words, God has given us everything in His Word necessary for salvation. Now the function of the law is to what? It's complete, it's perfect, restoring the soul. The, God gave the law to return humanity to our Creator, to its Creator. It reveals God's holiness. It reveals our sin. God's law drives us to despair so that we might be driven to Christ. That's why Paul calls it a schoolmaster or a tutor. Next, the psalmist writes, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. When God testifies about Himself, He tells the truth. That word sure here means faithful or steadfast. We can throw our weight on God's testimony, on God's Word, and it is going to hold us up. And I like the word simple. The word simple here refers to one who is open-minded, literally open to instruction. Are you simple-minded? Now you might chuckle at that, we might smile at that, but you know, that's what God wants us to be. He wants us to be simple-minded. Biblically, that is. He wants us to be open-minded to the teachings of His book, to have our minds open for instruction. Uh, Proverbs 1.4 says, To give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. That's what God wants to do. And, and all through the Psalms, or the Proverbs rather, you'll see that term simple. And you can put it this way, He wants to give wisdom to those who are open-minded, to those who are open for instruction. Now listen, you can be closed-minded uh, when it comes to the nonsense in the world. You can be closed-minded to all the lies and all the garbage and, and whatnot that's out there. But friends, when it comes to God's words, you need to be open-minded. Your mind needs to be open for teaching. And so many times, as, as believers, we're not open-minded. You know, we, we've got our opinion, we've made up our mind, and that's all there is to it. That's not how we have to be when it comes to God's Word. Our minds have to continually be opened for instruction. Now the psalmist asserts the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Because they are just, because they are righteous, that is, the Word of God is just and righteous, the heart, literally the mind of a person, rejoices. 
Through them, the seed of our intellectual faculties knows what to do and how to please the Lord. Do you understand that you cannot know how to please the Lord or what to do for the Lord, how to do His will, without the Word of God? How many times do you say, I, I don't know what God's will is for my life? And my first question is, have you read the Scriptures? No. Well, there's why you don't know what God's will is for your life. Or they'll run out and buy every book on the shelf on how to know God's will, but have never opened the Bible. Listen, the precepts of the Lord are right. They're just. They're righteous. That book, this book, will teach you all you need to know about God and His will. And it brings joy, and it brings gratitude. The parallel thought follows, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandment is pure because it's given by the Holy God. It, the Word of God is ritually clean and morally right. It is sanctified by God, and therefore it can bring enlightenment to your eyes. In other words, when you look at the commandments of God, your eyes, if you will, are transmitting the light of God into your soul. Notice what he says next. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, why is the revelation of God, why is the word of God called the fear of the Lord? There's two answers. First, when God reveals his will, it is awesome. Listen, the law came from Mount Sinai with thunder, smoke, and fire. Exodus chapter 20, 18 to 21, okay? So when the people were receiving God's word, they were filled with fear, with awe, with reverential awe. God was holy. Second, God's will is fearsome because of our sin. Listen, when God reveals himself in his holiness, we cry out like Isaiah Woe is me, I am a person of unclean fill-in-the-blanks, life, lips, limbs, etc. The fear of the Lord is clean. That means it is morally pure and separate. Psalm 12, 6 says the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in the furnace, purified seven times. It's uncorrupted by this world. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's through the law of God that God establishes His justice and His judgments, and they are trustworthy and righteous. And we're held accountable to that revelation on the day of judgment. Verse 10 summarizes the value of God's word. They're more desirable than gold, yea, than much fine gold. That's our true treasure. You know, when Jesus says, don't lay up for yourself treasure on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, He's talking about His Torah, His law, His word, His instructions. To hear his word and to do it is to put up treasure in heaven. To hear his word and obey it is to build our house upon the rock. To seek, to study, to obey God's word is to labor with that which lasts. And it's not only our treasure, but it's our delight. It's sweeter also than honey. It is a treasure to be claimed and eaten and enjoyed. You know, when God offered the land to his people, he promised it was flowing with milk and honey. And truly, his word was flowing through that land in that day. 
After drawing his conclusion on the value of the Torah, the psalmist turns to the use of the law. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Notice the author now identifies himself as being submitted to his master. He says, I'm delighting to do his will. You, your law warns me, tells me what to do and what not to do. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Remember, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. In keeping of them, there is great reward. There's a threefold reward. First, it's the reward of doing the Father's will. Second, it's the reward of living a, a life of, that's fulfilled, a life that's rejoicing, enlightened, enduring, true and righteous. Third, it's the assurance of being ready to stand before Christ's judgment seat. Remember, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and, and be tried according to what we have done, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Finally, verses 12 to 14, God's work required. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David asks, who can understand his errors? Apart from revelation, the answer is no one. This is why we, this is the work that's required from God on our part, to bring that word to show us, like a mirror, our true condition and our true crisis. Cleanse me from my secret faults. As God's word is open to us, as we see God revealed in nature, it cleanses us, keeps us back from presumptuous sins. You know, it's not just enough to be cleansed and protected. We need power to live a new life. Don't let those presumptuous sins have rule over me, the psalmist says. You know, once we're convicted of our sin and cleansed and protected from our sin, after the Holy Spirit has taken control of our lives, we can finally say, then I will be blameless. Then I will be acquitted of great transgression. And that's our position in Christ. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 19 concludes with one of the great short prayers of the Bible. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Since the psalmist has received the knowledge of God in creation and in his word, he has also received the cleansing and the empowering of God, and he now prays for this to be reflected both in his words and in the thoughts that lie behind his words. He asks that what he says and what he thinks might be acceptable to the Lord. Is that your prayer? Are you pray, praying to God on a regular basis that your words and your thoughts are acceptable to Him? Are your words acceptable to Him? Are your thoughts acceptable to Him? You know, it's the Word of God that is perfect, sure, right, clean, true, and righteous. And therefore, as His Word convicts, cleanses, instructs, then and only then will our thoughts and our words mirror His Word. Let, it, let God mold us and train us by His Word so that we can stand with assurance before Him. Remember the words of Jesus in John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples and deeds. Let's also pray that the Holy Spirit would sanctify us in truth. And remember, His word is truth. Father God in heaven, we thank and praise you, Lord, for this psalm. I thank you for revealing yourself generally to us as God. 
But as your children, you've done more than that. You've given us special revelation. You've given us your law, your word. And you've specially revealed yourself to us as Yahweh. Father, I ask that after all the revelation, the general and the special revelation, after all the streams of communication that you have opened to us, that, Father, we would conform to that goal, that we might know you, that, Lord, we might worship you, that, Father God, we might love you and obey you, that, Father, we may take all of this heavenly mass media, that, Lord, we will consume all of this special programming that you have made for us, and that, Father, it would transform us from this life of immorality to a life of morality that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our minds might be acceptable in your sight. We pray, amen.